the Baseball Lifer podcast is on the air. Well, hi, everybody. This is Don Wardlow here on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Well, since the last time you were here, spring training got started. We could finally hear games on the internet, watch them on TV. And it's so great to have baseball back again. Now, for one person, it's not wonderful. There's always one very hard luck person who gets hurt during the first week of spring training. And he's gone for the rest of the year. Usually it's a pitcher that that happens to. This time it was Gavin Lux, who was penciled in as the shortstop for the Dodgers. And the Dodgers had enough trouble before Gavin Lux tore up his ACL, which will put him out of action for the year. Before that, they had already lost both Trey Turner and Justin Turner as free agents. And because... Walker Bueller had to have Tommy John surgery late last season. This year is going to be Walker Bueller's year off. So he's gone. So you don't know. This just might be the year that San Diego can do the very unlikely. It will depend on a lot of things. It'll depend on Manny Machado. It'll depend on Juan Soto. Because he was nothing in San Diego after the trade, after the Nationals sent him there. And then there's the enigmatic Fernando Tatis Jr., who's still got to work off part of a drug suspension before he can start playing, which I understand he can about 20 games into the season this year. So last year, if you recall, he not only had the Suspension, he also had several surgeries, which had to do with a motorcycle wreck he had during the lockout that baseball had at the beginning of last season. So the Padres are going to be leaning on him. The Dodgers are going to be scrambling because, as I say, Gavin Lux is gone, as well as both Trey and Justin Turner. And they'll be looking for starting pitchers. Clayton Kershaw certainly isn't getting any younger. And without Walker Bueller, the Dodgers will be scrambling to see what they have in the minors or what else might be available as far as starting pitching goes. On the Baseball Lifer podcast, we got a guest this week. And this is a friend of mine from when Jim Lucas and myself were broadcasting He was a good friend to us in our very first year in 1991. We saw him for two years in the Florida State League, and lo and behold, he would come back in 1995, and we would see him for two years in the Eastern League. And he did one of the most extreme things just to get his toe in the door in baseball, and He'll tell you the details. His name is Andy Young. And I'll be back with Andy Young if you keep it right where you got it. 
back on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Don Ward, though, here, and my guest is an old friend. When I was a rookie, he'd already had some broadcasting under his belt. We were both in the Florida State League. I was with the Miracle with Jim Lucas in Pompano Beach, and my guest, Andy Young, at that time was in Vero Beach, first of all. Welcome, Andy. Don, thanks very much. I appreciate your reaching out and, and finding me. Now, going back before Vero Beach, you went to college at the University of Connecticut, which had WHUS, which at that time and continuing for about three more decades was about as good as a college radio station could get. Um, what kind of work did you do with WHUS? Well, I, it's those are kind words, and I have to say I don't know, but I've never experienced any other college radio station. WHUS had was marvelous. Uh, the the people who ran it uh, were wonderful. They they were kind and and patient, and the uh, it, it was a very wide variety of people. It was truly public radio. You had all kinds of uh, people, both on the air and behind the scenes there. Uh, the work I did for them uh, initially was I did the play-by-play -play for uh, the University of Connecticut hockey team, which back then was a Division II team that uh, played their their home games at an unenclosed arena. It had a roof over it, but no sides. So uh, there were, depending on the weather, there were nights when there was a, a tremendous uh, home ice advantage or disadvantage, depending on who the other team was. There were six degree nights, uh, sixty degree nights rather, where uh, uh, people you, you would throw up surf when you tried to stop on skates, and then there were the ones where the yeah. temperature was below zero. And one year, Fairfield, you wouldn't come back and play again because uh, too many of their guys sitting on the bench got frostbite. It was it was a tough night. But uh, I applied for I say applied. Uh, I was going nowhere academically at, at UConn, didn't have any direction, and I thought I really wanted to be a, a sportscaster. Baseball and hockey were my passions, and I didn't know anything about how you applied for jobs. So I went down to the radio station and uh, asked if they could use somebody to do the play-by-play -play for the UConn hockey games. And it just so happened they were looking for someone. And it also just so happened that uh, I was the third person to apply for the job. And since a hockey game has three periods, uh, the, uh, the folks in charge said, all right, well, you get three guys go down there and each of you do one period. I believe it was against the University of New Haven. And I think I was the least horrendous of the three. So I got the job, and from there I was—I uh, say I got the job. It was a, a volunteer, of course, no pay, but you're learning about things in college. I did all right there, so I—I I got a job uh, being one of the play-by-play uh, -play announcers for the UConn baseball team in the spring, and then later on, I got hooked up with UConn soccer, which at the time was was probably the big, uh, with the possible exception of men's basketball, the biggest sport on campus. They were a national powerhouse in the. Uh, late 70s and early 80s. I think the year after I left, they won the national championship there. One, uh, the one t time they did win a national championship, uh, I was doing the public address announcing at the home games, but uh, I was that was in the uh, fall of 81, I believe. Um, I had graduated in, in that previous spring. I did the uh, PA for the home games, but then I realized I was doing about 90 miles round trip for something like 10 bucks a game. And, and when you grow up in Connecticut, a 90 mile trip might as well be to, to Mars. That's as, about as far as I ever drove back then. So, uh, and, and plus I had to get a real job. And uh, so I left UConn and, uh, oh, probably about 
depending on your definition of real job, either four years or 20 years later, I got one. How did you go from college radio where you do a little bit of everything to pro baseball? Well, Don, there's a Baseball America uh, was a, a, a publication that came out of Durham, North Carolina in the early 80s. And uh, they sent out this marvelous guide. It was the uh, something like the professional baseball guide. And what it had was a list of, of the address and uh, people in charge of every professional baseball team in America, in North America, I suppose, Canada, too, and along with some college teams. So I had, I had done the... Uh, UConn baseball play-by-play for four years and and actually got a trip out to the College World Series uh, in 1979. That's the last time they went out there. And the people around uh, UConn were very complimentary of my work. They were encouraging and, and uh, said, you're really good. And of course, I believed I was very good. So I got a hold of that book from Baseball America and I started sending out resumes and cover letters. Uh, now, of course, the uh, uh, back then you had to type out every cover letter because we didn't have uh, computers or anything like that and you oh uh, heaven forbid there was a typo on there but uh since i knew i was just the greatest thing since sliced bread i didn't waste my time with any of those lower minor league teams i i uh i sent all of my uh, applications out to major league teams and triple a teams and after a couple of years of uh hearing nothing back uh, from people uh, and, and i suspect uh other than maybe getting an eye roll in a big league front office or whoever opened the mail thinking, who the heck is this guy? I, I set my sights a little lower. And in 1984, I sent out a batch of letters in the spring and I came home one night and got a message from somebody uh, from area code 907. And I was fairly familiar with area codes back then because I had uh, applied for a lot of jobs. I wasn't familiar with that one. Turned out it was the... Uh, the general manager slash president of the Alaska Gold Panners of the Alaskan Summer League. Uh, they were located in Fairbanks, Alaska, and it was on a Monday. And he asked, it turns out they were looking for somebody like me. Could I be up there on a Friday? And uh, that particular Friday, and I, I boy, I was kind of excited about it. But I also, I had to, I called him and told him I didn't think my car could make it. It was a $200 10-year-old Dodge Colt. And uh, he said, uh, I think he was probably rolling his eyes too, but he said, well, we would fly up here. Uh, bottom line, I got the job. That they they had a field of one applicant, so I was hired. Uh, the Alaskan Summer League has a, a uh, has long been, along with the Cape Cod League, at least at that time, the two premier collegiate leagues in the country. Uh, every Barry Bonds played up there. Tom Seaver, Dave Kingman, uh, a whole lot of people over the years. Uh, so I had a fun summer doing that uh, doing that job. In fact, uh, one of the pitchers on the Anchorage Glacier Pilots, I think their fourth starter was this crazy guy who was super wild and couldn't get the ball over plane. He was the biggest guy I ever saw. His name was Randy Johnson. Uh, he wasn't a big deal back then, but he, it turned out he ended up being a big deal later on. Uh, anyways, I, I got that job. It was just for the summer. And then uh, the following spring, I was hired by the Durham Bulls in the uh, Carolina League. It was an Atlanta Braves Class A farm team. And and it's, when they say it's not what you know, it's who you know, that was who you know. Uh, when UConn had gone to the uh, new uh, the Northeastern Regional Tournament in the spring of 1979, I met a fellow named Steve Pratt, who had been UConn's uh, student broadcaster the last time Connecticut had gone to the College World Series. That was 1972. He introduced himself. Uh, he was working, uh, I think, I believe he had a government job 
outside of Washington, D.C. The playoffs were in Annapolis, Maryland that year. Introduced himself. Uh, great guy. Just a wonderful man. Kept in touch with him. Uh, he left his government job a couple of years later to take over as the radio voice of uh, first the Alexandria Dukes and later the Durham Bulls. And he had, was leaving the Durham job to take a job at AAA. The owner didn't want to uh, look through 50 applications and t uh, re resumes and audition tapes. So he asked Steve if Steve knew anybody, and Steve gave him my name, and that's how I got into professional baseball. It was 1985 with the Durham Bulls. And when you and I became friends, you were kind enough to share a couple of your Durham recordings with me. One of them featured Barry Bonds on the opposition. In fact, Don, it's funny. I had forgotten about that. Uh, Barry Bonds came to the Prince William Pirates, which was Pittsburgh's uh, uh, Class A team that year, right after the June draft. He was uh, he was their first round pick, and they sent him to the Carolina League, which is a, a pretty uh, high start for someone that's just turning pro. And he was sensational. He uh, he had a heck of a half season. He uh, uh, he had three home runs in a single game, and I'm not sure if I had I, I wasn't. Uh, terribly technologically savvy back then, but I, someone recorded a few games for me and one of them might've been a three homer game. Barry Bonds had at Durham athletic park. Uh, I never got to talk to him uh, back then. I was still learning and he, and he was young and we didn't have a pregame show per se that year. But uh, what I do remember, he, the Barry Bonds of, of 1985 looked a whole lot different than the Barry Bonds of the, uh, uh, you know, late 1990s and early two thousands. Uh, he was listed at six one and one hundred and seventy pounds, and and uh, I remember he, I didn't think he looked like he was six foot one back then. He looked like a, a basketball player, but uh, obviously he grew some some muscles. And and those three homers in in Durham that day back in uh, nineteen eighty five was uh, just a hint of what was to come. He had quite a career. I can say something similar about Sammy Sosa because I was at his major league debut at Yankee Stadium. I was not a professional yet. I was a factory worker, but I would get off every now and then. And this is one night I went out there and they did a doubleheader and Sammy Sosa came up and Sammy was described on the radio as a infielder at the time and uh, not much of a hitter. And it took a while, but he he became quite a hitter. He He and Barry Bonds had some you know, home run chases down through the years later on. It's funny. Uh, there are a number of players that were signed out of Latin America in general, the Dominican Republic in particular, often came to the U.S. Uh, un literally undernourished. Uh, we had a pitcher in Portland when I worked up there, a fellow named Antonio Alfonseca, uh, who was about six foot five or six, six, and was listed at 160 pounds. And, uh, that was what apparently they didn't change the height and weight from the first, uh, the Expos had signed him years before, but boy, by the time I saw him, I think uh, one of his legs weighed 160 pounds. He had put on, uh, uh, he had gotten quite a bit of nutrition since he came over here. Um, we had another uh, fellow named Felix Heredia who they listed at 135 pounds. And these guys literally didn't eat a whole lot when they were in the Dominican Republic. They got bigger over here. And, and I imagine the same thing happened with Sammy Sosa, although uh, as history has shown, there may have been some pharmaceutical uh, aids with some of those folks, but that's that's what was going on back then. And, and uh, you know, that's history, sort of like you and me. <laughs> so between the stop in Durham and then the stop where we met each other in Vero Beach, what baseball was there for you? Oh, there was coaching high school teams back in Connecticut. Uh, at the end of 1985, I did my first year with the Bulls. 
the uh, season started April 3rd and ended Labor Day. There were three days off during that time, uh, one of which was two days into the season and two of which were the all-star break. I worked seven days a week. Uh, my day was spent at the front desk of the of Ballpark Corner, which was the souvenir shop across the street from Durham Athletic Park. I had no time off to myself, no social life. Uh, and I thought, well, okay, I've had my dream job. I've done it. I don't want to do this anymore. So I, at the end of the year, um, I, uh, Miles Wolf, who was owned the club, asked me if I was going to come back the following year. And I, I resoundingly told him no. And Miles had been a radio play-by-play man himself prior to, to getting into uh, ownership and running ball clubs. And, and he had, uh, he said, well, you know, listen, I've done what you've done. I know you're tired. Uh, and you're, you know, you're worn out after the season. Let me give you a call in January. And I said, Miles, don't do that. Cause if you do, uh, I'll probably say yes. And then I'll regret it. Uh, and it, it, which in some ways is too bad that the guy who followed me, uh, who got the job with a fellow named Gary Cohen, who last I looked had been doing New York Mets games for probably decades. They're pretty darn close to it. Yeah. Uh-huh. He, um, and, but, uh, Miles Wolf, uh, there are, as you know, there are a lot of, uh, in any business, but in, in baseball, there are, uh, you run into some unusual people and some really great people. And, and Miles Wolf is one of the finest human beings I've ever had the privilege to, uh, to run into and to, to work for him and, and also later for a series of his associates uh, was a pleasure and a privilege. I was very fortunate uh, through Steve Pratt to get to know him. But direct answer, uh, for the next three years, 1986 and 87, I went back to my uh, old high school and I was a uh, hired as, uh, I believe we were called special education paraprofessionals, which is a, a fancy word for uh, a teacher's aide. I, I tutored algebra and uh, whatever other subjects uh, some high school kids had in a, in a resource room for a couple of years, uh, coached some baseball at the school. And then I uh, uh, did what anybody would do, wanted to get back into baseball. I joined the Peace Corps. I had uh, decided I was going to uh, try a new adventure and I uh, applied to join the Peace Corps. Uh, the demand for, for the services of a uh, of a English major who speaks one language weren't all that high, but uh, for some reason, somebody at the Peace Corps, they they had a youth development program in Guatemala and they were looking for people uh, to uh, end poverty and suffering by uh, going over to other countries. And and in my case, teaching them basketball. And uh, so I went down to, uh, I went to Guatemala intending to stay there two years. I lost a quick 40 pounds after three months and was, uh, strongly advised to return home, which I did. And uh, so I came back and I substitute taught for a couple of years and coached a variety of sports around the high school for a couple of years. And then in the uh, summer of 1989, I got a call from a fellow named John Brown. Uh, John was the general manager of the Burlington Indians, Burlington, North Carolina. Uh, It was an Appalachian League rookie league, uh, rookie level team. He was working for Miles Wolf. He had a a radio play-by-play announcer that had uh, resigned, retired, left in the middle of the year with three weeks to go. He needed a uh, he needed a play-by-play guy, and he needed one right then. And uh, Miles had recommended me, and I thought for three weeks, sure, I can do that. And I went down to uh, take over with the Indians. And as a broadcaster, as you know, you're uh, you're neither fish nor fowl. You're not uh, you're kind of an inside outsider. You're not a member of the team, but you're riding the bus, and you are you know in some ways you are a team member 
So uh, I joined this team that's been together for most of the summer as a total stranger. And I just had a blast. And it was funny. It was a 10-team league. The Indians were locked into seventh place when I got there. They weren't going any higher. They weren't going any lower. Uh, the manager was a fellow named Jim Gabella, who was my age. And and uh, I just thought he was a great guy. And there were it was a fun team. And in particular, a fellow named Michael Gonzalez, who was a 47th round draft pick out of, I think, Sol Ross State out in West Texas somewhere. Uh, he made me feel at home. They were just, it was a good group of guys. As I finished the season with him and, and Miles said, uh, Miles asked me if I would like to uh, uh, come back and do the, uh, the well, John Brown actually was the guy doing the asking, would I like to come back for 1990? And again, it's a June, July, August league. So I said, sure. And uh, went back, did the season there. And from that led to Vero Beach, where I ran into you and Jim. I spent two years down there and uh, two years of the Florida State League, I, I, I would imagine you would agree, was quite enough. Uh, Florida in the summer is not my wasn't my favorite place. So I went back to Burlington uh, to do another year with the Indians in 1993. And uh, after that, uh, my association with Miles Wolf, uh, I think, paid off yet again. Uh, in 1994, I had the chance to go out to Butte, Montana. Uh, it's in the Pioneer League beautiful part of the country I hadn't seen. There was uh, three teams in Montana, a couple in Alberta, uh, one in Utah, and I think there was uh, there was one in Idaho. I'm forgetting where the, the other one was, but beautiful part of the country. Uh, Miles had a, a stake in the team up in Butte. Spent a wonderful summer there, and I, I, I loved the town so much. I might have stayed, had the opportunity not come up to, to uh, head back east to where I'm from, and in 1994, there were a couple of expansion teams in the Eastern League, uh, double, you know, the Double A Eastern League. Uh, New Haven was one, and Portland, Maine was the other. I wasn't really interested in going to New Haven because I'm from there, and I just, you know, I'm looking to explore new places. But I did apply for the Portland job in 1994, which I did not get. They hired somebody else for the first year, but he didn't work out. And uh, word got back to me that 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 had happened. So I reapplied for the 1995 season. I was hired there. And that is, uh, that's what brought me to Portland, Maine. And I, uh, a lot of good things happened. It was the beginning. Uh, I thought it was the beginning of a new part of my career. It, it turned out it was, it was the beginning of the end because after seven years in, in Portland, I left baseball, but, uh, you know, incredible memories. And I've, I've done a lot of things since then. Uh, and any successes that I've had in life and any uh, any positive traits that I picked up along the way, I credit largely to uh, some of the people that I worked around in baseball. On the Baseball Life for Podcast, Don Wardlow here with my old baseball friend, Andy Young. As early as 79, and I didn't find this out, interviewing you in the 90s, you had done the College World Series with Connecticut. Later on, you would do postseason with Portland. I don't know about Vero Beach, but it, do you agree that postseason is a whole different level for the players and the broadcasters as well? You may have been gassed the end of the regular season, but the day the postseason began, somehow, bang, you put it into a new gear. Yes and no. I... I uh... It is exciting, particularly when you're new to uh, to be involved in a postseason situation. The, the UConn trip to the College World Series was remarkable. Then, as I say, as now, I haven't been back in decades, but uh, oh, you're treated like visiting potentates out there in Omaha. They can't do enough for you. Um, unfortunately, with UConn, we were the only 
uh, team from east of the Mississippi or north of the Mason-Dixon line. That, uh, that was back uh, when they did things geographically. And we, we played two games, lost two games, and came back home. But we it was an unforgettable experience. I, I believe we had the lead in both of them. It was We lost to Texas, and then we lost to uh, Cal State Fullerton, who ended up we lost to Cal State Fullerton in the, in the losers bracket, and they ended up winning the whole tournament. But by the time that happened, we had been home for a week. Uh, with pro ball, it was a little different. Don, we uh, uh, in Vero Beach in 1991, uh, the Dodgers won the first half, which meant that they were guaranteed to make the playoffs. And I had heard uh, rumors that I, I didn't believe at the time that postseason games drew. Neck, do no no crowds whatsoever, or very few. And I thought, why? This is exciting. This is the playoffs. It's for the championship. Uh, but that was those were rose tinted uh, spectacles. The the truth is, with minor league baseball, uh, most of the crowds you get during the season uh, are on promotional nights. And of course, there's uh, schedules all over the community that tells you when the games are. By the nature of uh, the playoffs, you don't know whether or not you're going to be in them uh, for quite some time. And then even if, when you do know, you don't know. If you'll be home or road, you don't know the dates. And it's tough to do much of a pre-sale. So the Dodgers uh, ended up in the uh, in the Florida State League playoffs in a best-of-three series in, for the division against the Osceola Astros. Uh, and we had the best record during the regular season, but, of course, that doesn't mean anything. Um, the Astros won the first game. We won the second game. And then uh, to, the, uh, to my letdown uh, – the uh, Astros won the third game, so we were eliminated. I, I want to say that was on a uh, Wednesday night and 6 a.m. the next morning. Uh, me and an outfielder named Ira Smith were driving north to get out of Vero Beach in Florida as fast as we could and go back home. Uh, and again, they drew next to nobody there. And even in Portland, uh, where the first two years I was with the Sea Dogs, uh, they were in the Eastern League playoffs. Uh, Portland was unusual. They actually drew very, very well for their first playoff series. Uh, it was against New Haven in 1995, but uh, they were a second year franchise that was uh, a huge hit up here. They, uh, and, and plus they had, so they were locked into the playoffs with a couple weeks to go so they could push the tickets. Um, it was, uh, but yes, more often than not in the minor leagues and, and what you do find in the clubhouses is the players, uh, the attitude with the players, at least when I was there. And again, now we're going back at least a couple decades most of the ballplayers were either let's win this thing or let's lose fast because uh, they've got uh, and, and plus back then uh, most of the guys had either off-season jobs to go to or were going back to school to to finish up some classwork and uh, they weren't getting uh, they weren't getting rich playing minor league baseball even for an extra week um, I want to say when I worked in Burlington the, the guys made 800 and I think it was 875 dollars a month Meal money was $11 a day. Class A was slightly higher. Double uh, A was slightly higher, but not a whole lot higher. So uh, uh, one of the things, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this from from people too, there's a, um, when people say they play professional baseball, they assume you mean major leagues. Uh, major league baseball is professional baseball, but professional baseball is not major league baseball. And uh, unless you're at that major league level, you're not making a whole lot of money. And, and uh, as we know, there's a very limited window for uh, how long you can make a living playing a professional sport because sooner or later your body gives out. And, and plus there's a, a sea of younger people uh, coming in every year to, to fight for the job, same jobs that you're fighting for. With Andy Young on the Baseball Lifer podcast. And from what you're saying, you left the game about the same time as I did. I left 
at the end of 2002. And um, I've followed the game ever since. I've never stopped, much to the consternation of my wife, who became my ex-wife, who expected me to quit following the game after I quit broadcasting it. But the question here is, the analytics, the new the new stats that you and I never had to wrestle with, would they make it more difficult for you to broadcast baseball in 2023 if somebody came up with an offer that knocked your socks off? I would have a real problem because of the new numbers. I wouldn't have a place to put them. I would have a real problem because I don't know anything about the game anymore, at least not at the uh, the pro level. When I left, I left at the, uh, at the end of 2001. It was interesting. I, the last game I did was September 4th. 2001, uh, the Sea Dogs, uh, the Altoona curve walked off against the Sea Dogs on a base hit in the bottom of the 10th inning. I rode the bus back all night from Altoona to Portland. I had become a dad uh, nine months earlier, and at, uh, it became apparent that making a minor league salary and, and no benefits was not going to do the job. So I went back to school and I uh, uh, through a variety of, of happy coincidences, I not only got a degree to teach English, but uh, got hired by a, a school who was willing to take a chance on a 45-year-old novice. Uh, and I've been teaching English for 21 years now at Kenny Monk High School here in Maine, and it's it's where I belong. It, you know, I didn't take an un- I took an unusual route to get there. But Don, as far as baseball goes, um, I still umpire little league games, and I coached my kids' teams or helped out coaching with my kids' teams when they were younger, but. Uh, Honestly, I haven't fought. I don't uh, where I currently live. I don't have a television set. That was a conscious choice on my part. I haven't had one. I probably haven't turned on a TV in about 30 years. Um, And it's funny. One of my sons, who's very much into sports, although his thing is soccer more than baseball. He and I were talking one night and uh, he asked me something about the World Series. And I proceeded to go from, I think, 19 from the mid 80s to about to the uh, mid eighties to the late forties going in reverse. I told him who played in every world series, who won, who lost and how many games it took. And uh, that knocked his socks off. But the problem is anything after 1985, I I'd have a hard time. Actually, I shouldn't say that 86. If you live up in new England, you remember that's the Red Sox and the Mets, but uh, I couldn't tell you who's won the world series or who's been in it any year for the last 20 years. I, I, um, my interests have gone elsewhere. I, I still stay in touch with some terrific people uh, around the. I worked with around the game, and that includes my Portland days, my uh, you know my days in the Florida State League with you guys, and and Appalachian League. Uh, Miles Wolf, John Brown, oh the the list goes on and on. Uh, uh, more ball players than I can count who I still stay in touch with. Um, I mean, some of these guys. Uh, there's a fellow named Steve Wilson who I uh, met on the Alaska team that. Uh, this was in 1984, and uh, he actually pitched a few years in the major leagues with the uh, with the Cubs and the Dodgers. And he and I have been in touch. Uh, he's he's got an international scout for the New York Yankees now. Um, we've known each other more than uh, significantly more than uh, half his life, and and more than half of my life as well. Same goes for a fellow named Brad Brink, who was uh, pitched briefly with the Phillies and the Giants, and has become a uh, an award-winning second-grade teacher out in his uh, home area of Modesto, California. Uh, those are the first two that come to mind, but there are uh, literally scores of guys who I connected with over the years that I hear from once in a while. Um, 
with baseball, I, I do miss, uh, sometimes I'll miss the traveling and, and seeing old friends, uh, but the ones who matter, uh, and, and you're a perfect example because you, you tracked me down somehow, and uh, whether you see them every day or every week or twice a year or once a decade, the ones that matter will continue to matter. And I think the best thing I got out of baseball was was all these connections with uh, terrific people. And uh, and funny thing is, uh, in my job, I taught a literature of sports class for years at the at the high school where I'm at. But uh, it might be that in preparing me to teach at the high school level, um, those education courses were fine. But the way I learned to run a classroom was by riding buses full of baseball players and hockey players for a lot of years. And and uh, and, you know, talking interviewing people i mean you you've i'm sure talked to folks too i interviewed people that played uh, major league baseball in the 1930s and 40s and by the time i left uh i was interviewing people who were uh, you know who were being born after i graduated college so uh it, it covers a lot of time but uh baseball i i, I still uh, contribute as a uh, as a plate umpire here in uh, in cumberland maine where i live now uh at some ball games in the in the spring and summer, but uh, beyond that, I stopped playing softball a couple of years ago because my shoulder is shredded and I can't throw across the infield anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's a great thing. I I still, but it's funny, Donna. Uh, you know, I you're talking about all the analytics. I don't know anything about on base. Well, I do know about on base percentage, on base plus slugging or uh, win shares and that kind of stuff. It it doesn't mean a lot to me. Uh, but unfortunately, every time I read something about baseball in the paper, the numbers that they're mentioning have are not batting averages or earned run averages. They're salaries and their number of years on the contract. And and uh, a that doesn't interest me. And b what I do get out of it, uh, you know, the fact that anyone, let alone somebody who's under forty years old, is is bringing in you know four or five six million dollars a year is is obscene, and uh, I can't. Uh, I can't get good. I mean, they. Uh, I don't find Major League Baseball a very attractive product these days. Uh, but that said, I, it's understandable, um, having been involved in the game earlier. And also, uh, Major League Baseball, like any other uh, business, is crazy if they uh, if they aim any of their marketing efforts at guys in their 60s. You know, they're going after younger fans. And uh, the la- I've been to one Major League Baseball game in the last 20 plus years. And oh, it was overlong and everybody had their own theme music and it was loud and uh, the prices were beyond the stratosphere. And uh, so I, I really have uh, the major league game. I just don't follow it. There's uh, the, the, uh, the good news is I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't follow it, but uh, there's, I still just have 24 hours in my day and other things have taken priority. So uh, I, I guess um, being too busy to uh, to follow the game, to follow the major league any, anyway, is uh, is probably not a bad thing. I uh, I still love watching the game because I've got some kids that are uh, in my English class that are that love baseball and they're good ball players, and I'll watch them play in the springtime. Uh, and and my youngest son's uh, my youngest son is a junior in high school, and and uh, some of his friends are on the local varsity team, and it's, it's fun watching these kids grow up and they love the game, and that's great. And uh, Boy, I love the game too, but uh, you know, I've I've moved on to other things. Uh, but like you, I will. Uh, the the memories I've got are uh, quite literally priceless. I I, uh, I don't know who who or where I would be had it not been for baseball. 
You've been listening to the Baseball Lifer podcast with Andy Young, my guest. Thanks a lot, Andy, for joining me today. Hey, and John, uh, Don, thanks for having me. And also, thanks thanks for doing this. This is uh, your, uh, as I was, as you were 30, 30 years ago or 30 plus years ago. Uh, boy, then as now, your, your work is a labor of love. It's inspiring. And uh, you're a good reminder of why I, uh, I feel so, uh, so fortunate to have spent all that time uh, in baseball and around people like you and Jim. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, Don. I appreciate being asked. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast, our thanks, of course, to Andy Young for joining us on the program. Now, he's a guy who successfully did what I could not do and what, in fact, my wife asked me to do when I left baseball. She asked me to stop following my Yankees and any other football games I might listen to. I couldn't do that. And Andy Young was actually able to do it, as difficult as it must have been. And he just talked to you about that on our program. Next week, another former broadcasting colleague of mine, who's still broadcasting as we speak, he'll be getting ready for his 23rd consecutive season with the Round Rock Express, the Texas Rangers AAA Farm Club. That's Mike Caps, and you'll be able to hear Mike, and we'll talk about his book, which is called Grinders, if you join me next week on the Baseball Lifer Podcast. Take care, everybody. Thank you.